Christine and are back from a very long hiatus uh, to Lips One Mike. We still exist. We're still paying for this subscription, so we're back. We're going to make the most of this episode too because we've just been essentially throwing money down the drain the last couple of months. Yeah, I know. And people have been, like, strangely enough, people have actually been asking um, where we're at, <laughs> why the radio silence. So it's it's actually really nice to hear that people are listening to us and enjoy our rantings. I feel like I should assume the bulk of responsibility for why it's taken us so long to actually record an episode. No, I don't think so. I think it's just a bit of, like, life's gotten in the way for both of us. So yeah. let's catch up. What's been going on? Um, well, I think the main issue for me has really been my health these last couple of months. Um, in June, as most of you will know, or most of you that actually know me, um, <laughs> I was in the hospital for, it was either three or four nights. Um due to an issue I had um, with what's called polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which is essentially like a hormonal condition um, that's characterised by having a lot of cysts around your ovaries. Um, And it's actually the leading cause of infertility in women as well, which I didn't know until I was diagnosed. And so you were incapacitated for like weeks after that. Yeah. Because there was just like illness after illness after illness. Well, they had to really aggressively tackle it while I was in the hospital and that essentially involved them putting me on four different strains of antibiotics. So the surgeon warned me before discharging me that essentially my immune system was non-existent and I was likely to be falling ill for anywhere between the next six to 12 months. But having said all of that, you threw yourself pretty much straight back into work? Yeah, which is probably a coping mechanism of sorts too, I think, but um, I definitely paid the price for it. Um, This past month I've had the flu, mm. a sinus infection, and tonsillitis just to top it off. So I've learned my lesson the hard way. I think this is a very, like, interesting segue because we've both been defeated by our bodies in the last two years Mm. in terms of I think when you're younger you think you're invincible and you can push yourself to the limit and have that unrelenting like not quitting working hard mentality but it really takes like your body completely malfunctioning Mm. for you to stop and reassess and it's a forcible stop actually Mm. because you can't do anything without your body Mm. and so has this led kind of to like an enlightenment are you like a new wellness warrior now (laughs) um I'm working towards that I wouldn't describe myself as a wellness warrior but I think both of us through our experiences have been really forced to reassess what our priorities are and also realizing as cliche as it is that if you don't have your health you really don't have anything else including your work so best to invest in that in order to actually do well personally and professionally completely and I think like one of our friends was saying if you're dead tomorrow, work's going to continue on, you know, like you, mm. it's not worth killing yourself for a job. And I think in our profession, it's really important to just step back and remember that you're not saving anyone's life. Mm. Um, if you don't submit something in on time, it's mm-hmm. not a matter of life or death. We don't have the death penalty in Australia. So it's, it really isn't like, yeah. you know, everything can be solved by something. In that period that I was in hospital, work was still done, Um, you know, the world kept spinning. Exactly. Um, This past month when I took somewhere in the vicinity of five days off in three weeks, again, there were protocols in place to actually address that. 
And there has to be. I mean, I think that's a part of running a business. That's the, the cost of doing business. It's mm. up to the employers to be able to do that. Mm. And I think it's almost kind of arrogant of us to think that the world cannot, like the workplace cannot run mm-hmm. without you. And I, I think in the depths of my like real like crazy period last year, I was just like, I can't not be at work. Like mm-hmm. I have to go to work even though I was so ill. Mm-hmm. It's so silly because I came back and my colleagues had done all, like, all the work on my files, like, you know, and mm-hmm. it is a bit, like, now that I can think rationally about it, it's a bit insulting almost to think that other people can't do just as good a job or, you know. That's a really good point. I never thought of it that way, you know. I, I thought, oh, I'm just letting down my colleagues. And oh, my no, clients. that was my initial thought. Yeah. But now that I've had time to think about it and I've actually, and that I've seen my like colleagues do amazing like work mm-hmm. because, you know, that's why they hire them. Um, it, it, it does make me pause to reflect and think, you know, they hire people to do these things. You're not the only one. You're not running the business. Mm, exactly. So it's not the end of the day, not, it's not going to fall on you ultimately. Mm. And also you know, we're pretty junior in the scheme, in the scheme of things. So if they didn't have those practices in place, that's kind of on them. Yeah, exactly right. Well, it's good to have you back Thank and you. hopefully this means we can do some more regular <laughs> podcasting. I hope so too. Um, what about you? What's been happening for you the last few months? Nothing much. Just been slamming through um, slamming through these books so that we can get mm-hmm. through to our um, discussions today. It's mm-hmm. been We've held off on it for a really long time, so there's just, like, so much content in it, like, sort of spurt out. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's get to speaking about the first thing that we really wanted to chat about, which was Clementine Ford's new book, Boys Will Be Boys. Yes. What were your initial thoughts about this? Um, Well, I had been eagerly awaiting the release of this book. Um, We both devoured her first book, Fight Like a Girl. I read it again Yeah, me too. Um, So, yes, I was eagerly awaiting the release of it. Um, I found it to be, I guess, both a really powerful read but also a really painful one. Um, There were definitely moments where I just had to check out for my own emotional well-being. Let's just stop here and say we're going to do spoilers. I know people – Oh, good point. Some people get funny about it. I'm not going to, like, tell you when to stop listening (laughs) and start listening again, so maybe just skip this episode. Um, because we're going to devour quite a few topics mm. in it. So um, I want to start with my topic to bring to the table mm-hmm. because it starts at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. It was actually the second chapter, which um, it was in A women, a Woman's Place. Mm-hmm. And so this chapter really talked about sort of the roles that we ascribe to men and women uh, with respect to the home. And I found it really interesting because we both read Annabelle Crabbe's The Wife Drought. So yes. we kind of had that in the background but what I found particularly interesting about this subject of housework was not so much the book the book provided the chapter was really interesting and provided some really good stats and was a great prompt Mm -hmm. but the conversations that it generated outside of the book so I was banging on about housework for essentially you know the last month and a half two months Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke about it with colleagues I spoke about it with friends and like started a fight amongst um some friends <laughs> do they listen to this podcast i don't know oh i was gonna 
ask you to retell that story if you could <laughs> in a way that doesn't disclose who they are. Oh, yeah. Look, I'll keep it really high level, but essentially, like, it just kind of goes to show how prickly this topic is because mm. even with my partner and I, we've argued about this forever, like, since... And it is worse when you move in because one of the statistics that um, she points out is that... Um, so she cites uh, the academic Leah... Rupana, who said that it's during singlehood that housework time is most equal by gender and that the the statistics um, tend to show that when women start to cohabit, their housework time goes up while men goes down regardless of their employment status. Mm. And that is an interesting thing to pause and think about because, Mm. and I've had really like heated debates with this, um, with friends and with my partner about, what that means about women's standards like are we should we be lowering them mm-hmm. but it's difficult to do that if you've been conditioned for like I don't know your whole life to have a particular standard of cleanliness and irrespective of that if people rock up into your house it's you who's going to get judged exactly and I know that's not right mm. but it instantly puts you on the defensive mm. well yeah nobody sort of critiques the man in the house when you know the toilet seat is, um, you know, dirty, dirty or something. It. It's, it's always reflective everywhere. on the woman, which is unfortunate. But yeah, is it is it up to us to sort of cop it in the short term, i.e., lower our standards yeah, in the short term, yeah. if it means in the long term that there is going to be a more equal division of labour? Well, in these conversations that I had with um, my wide consultative panel. Um, one of one of them said that they actually sat down with their partner and did a Excel spreadsheet. They essentially set down every single task wow. required in a house plus the minutes plus like um, what level of enjoyment it is. So the way she explained this was that it's not going to be viewed as a chore if it's um, something that you enjoy, for instance. So if you like cooking mm-hmm. and then you're rostered on to cook for most of the week, that's not a chore in the same way. Like it has to con- – and so that, that factor p- played into it. Right. But then it got rotated around so that, you know, if they really like it, they'll do it for a week and then they'll rotate on to doing something else they don't like, like uh-huh. mowing the lawn. And so she said that was a really good basis for her and her partner when they first moved in. Mm-hmm. Like now they don't really use it as much, but it was a really good conversation and just a, like a, a dispute resolution strategy mm-hmm. to put in place. Whereas a lot of other, and so, you know, people got quite defensive about it, especially guys, mm-hmm. um, about not all men. their perceived lack of, <laughs> housework like they might think they're doing a lot Mm -hmm. but I think that's not perhaps stepping outside of their bubble and seeing what their partners are actually doing Mm -hmm. and so in my house I live with two boys um, and there is a huge disparity between what I perceive as something that needs to be done um, and what they perceive as what needs to be done Mm -hmm. like I think if I wasn't here, I don't think the toilet would get cleaned until, like, inspection times. That's twice a year. Oh, my God. Okay. I don't know if that's an exaggeration. I just think, like, it doesn't bother them. That's what Nick was saying. Mm -hmm. He said it just doesn't bother him Mm -hmm. in the same way. Have you tried to negotiate a middle ground where when it comes to certain things being done around the house, it needs to be done to, say, your standard 
But, but then. then he'll uh, – so that's the other thing that um, he was saying, which mm. is, like, the whole system is flawed of itself. Like, in terms of women have been conditioned to think that the house is their domain, right, and that we have particular sets of standards. Right. Whereas men – and it was an interesting view – men have been conditioned to feel as if they can't contribute in the same way to the house. Right. Like that their furnishing, like, you know, um, specifications might be ignored or that they have to be subordinate to the female person who runs a house. And that's reflective of many households where you mm. see mum is the one responsible for furnishing and buying the furniture and, like, making sure the patterns are right. And mm-hmm. it's seen as her domain. And even when sometimes men try and step up to the plate because they're not accustomed to doing it. They usually don't do it as exactly. well. Exactly. And then women are just like, okay, I'm just going to do it. Like exactly. my mum does that with my brother. When Same. Like, my mum does that with my dad all the time. Yeah. It kind of defeats the purpose. It does because you don't learn mm-hmm. if you don't give them that freedom. Like um, yesterday I was listening to a colleague say that she was going to pack like her children's clothes and I was like why don't you just get your husband to do it Mm -hmm. and she was like oh he always forgets the things that need to be packed and blah 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 and I was (laughs) like well don't complain about it then I suppose yeah Yeah. like it's um it's a good learning opportunity for your husband Mm -hmm. and but if you're going to subsume it then I guess you shouldn't Mm. like be complaining about the labor Mm -hmm. but then like obviously I'm a hypocrite because I'm complaining about like, you grow resentful mm-hmm. when you have these statistics in your back pocket and you see the huge sort of disparity between, like, how much housework we do. Like, the stats are pretty confronting about how much we do and how much women do when their work their work hours increase. They mm-hmm. actually do more to compensate for the, you know. Male egos, essentially. Especially well, when they're the breadwinners. I think a lot of it is because they feel guilt mm-hmm. because we have been conditioned to think we're meant to be providing for the home. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you just automatically will go up. So when yeah. you say providing, you mean sort of like cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And doing all the home duties mm-hmm. and that type of cooking and, you know, making sure it looks good and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think reading this book and in particular that chapter that really talked about the social conditioning that lies behind all of this, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah it's it's made me think a lot and like now that really is at the forefront of my mind when I'm doing things around the house um I guess to go back to Nick's point the other point he was saying about men was that they've been similarly conditioned and so why don't we dismantle the whole thing so how does that look in practice I don't know okay I mean it's a good abstract theory yeah I don't know how it would work Will anyone clean ever? Like, I don't quite understand how that would manifest itself. I think because he's saying that both sets are bringing very different standards to the table. Yeah. And so, you know. Doesn't it mean then sort of... Compromise on both ends. Exactly. So mm. that that was my earlier point. So when it comes to certain chores around the house, maybe particular chores that are of importance to you, that Nick and Eli meet you on your level there but mm. that when it comes to other areas that perhaps don't carry the same importance that you kind of go down to their level yeah no and I definitely have had to mm-hmm. um I don't really use my kitchen very often but I do notice like other people will use it a lot more and so like we will have lots and lots of like pile-ups of cups mm-hmm. and sometimes we'll be there for days because people have just been gone and it does bother me but mm-hmm. I just have to learn to kind of let it go because that's mm. the price you pay for living with people mm. but um yes that's generated some interesting debate which part of the book was of interest to you um so this is 
probably very predictable. But... Mine was very <laughs> trivial compared to your mine. Oh, no, no, no. I think they sort of, yeah, sort of raise the same sorts of themes. But um, the chapter that I picked out was Chapter 8 called Your Honour, I Object. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. And I, I liked that one too. Yeah, I think it's very relatable for both of us given that. Working you know, in family law. Exactly. And just coming from a legal background. Um, but essentially what the chapter is about is um, a critique of the Australian legal system um, and in particular a critique of the men's rights activist movement and their views that especially the family law system and the criminal law system, especially when it comes to allegations of sexual assault, mm. is actually biased in favour of women. You know, men. I'm going to share a really interesting and naive an- a- anecdote mm. about this. So when I was 21... Um, and working um, in a community legal centre um, doing family violence, I remember seeing a client and he was very convincing to me. Um, he was like, oh, the courts are so biased against me and, like, you know, I, I recently came out of um, a term of imprisonment because I threw a vacuum cleaner at my wife because she's making shit up because she wants the kids blah, blah, blah. And so I, I lapped it all up. I was like, oh, poor you. The court's really screwing you over. I went and spoke to the principal super um, solicitor and he was like, right, I'm going to go to speak to him with you. And so he went in and he was like, the court is not going to like you. If you go in with this mentality <laughs> that the court is biased and screwing you over and mm. your rights, it's not going to bode well in your favour. Mm. Um, and the principal solicitor's nose was right on it because he was a huge men's rights activist. He was, um, I remember there was like a Facebook post trying to invite all his like, you know, men's rights um, mates to come down to the federal circuit court for his court hearing. Oh my God. Um, and yeah, no, I'll never forget that. Wow. I mean, it's hard not to feel like it's biased when you work with a pile of men clients. Sometimes, and listen, there are definitely legitimate clients who are done a disservice. Um, there like are by family court reporters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think, I don't know if you found this from your practicing experience in family law, but on the whole, that is not the trend. Um, we, yes, women are more likely than not to be given primary caregiver status when it comes to looking after their children in the aftermath of a breakup. But there are legitimate reasons behind that. Exactly. And that is something I've had to learn. Yes. And I've tr- ha- tried to have that discussion with many of my male clients. Oh, they don't get it. Um, they don't get it. Some are more susceptible than others. But, yeah, on the whole, you know, you try and tell them, listen, the paramount consideration is what is in the best interest of the children. Who and... they've been with for the last. Exactly. Like... And, you know, what really pisses me off about family law matters is that – they, it's all fine and dandy, like to go back to the, what I was talking about, which is the the lower end of the scale, which is the inequity in um, domestic duties, Mm. including child rearing. It's all fine and dandy for that. But the moment that, you know, um, there's a application filed in the federal circuit court for children, it all gloves are off. Mm. And all of a sudden they have a renewed interest. It's like, where the fuck have you been all the other times? Mm-hmm. Where have you been doing, you know, the child rearing? Like you weren't around. You didn't show any interest. 
that was sort of my... Yeah, it's such an entitled point of view to think that you can do so little when you're in that relationship and that just because the relationship's ended, you are now as equal a parent in respect of the time you get with the child. No. Yeah. And um, to just to interject and go into a bit of a history lesson, mm. so... Um, when this Family Law Act was introduced in 1975, it was a much, um, it was very disputed, mm-hmm. um, particularly amongst men, because there it got it introduced no fault divorce. Mm-hmm. It introduced a whole set of different rights and stuff, and it's been such a, a contentious act. Um, we've had Pauline Hanson's oh. um, party push successfully for a review of the Family Law Act, and according to one of my clients, there are amendments coming in in February. Oh, my God. So, um, you know... What, on the basis of her proposals? On the basis of the review. Oh, okay. The review that was largely led by men's rights activists. But on Mm. the very far end scale of this is that very famous case. I mean, when this court was introduced, it's the only court where we've had a judicial officer killed doing their job. And so um, there's a very famous case. It's just Google family court murders. Um, There's only ever been one. And he essentially went on this rampage where he killed a judge. He killed a judge's wife. He almost killed um, the solicitor who, um, for the wife, who is now a serving judge of the federal federal circuit court, I think. Um, And he bombed like a Jehovah's Witness church thing it all stopped when the mother essentially gave up her daughter and so that's the far end of the scale that entitlement Mm. to um your children it it can have really disastrous consequences Mm. um yeah so i found that particularly interesting um but also um her discussion of the criminal law system too um And actually, she discussed some things that I didn't quite know about sexual assault. So she was talking about this whole belief amongst, again, a lot of your men's rights activists that the bulk of allegations of sexual assault are false reports. Mm. Um, Don't know where they got that stuff from. Yeah. Well, it's actually based on this incredibly... Is it one in three? No, it's not actually. It's even older than that. Um, But yeah, it's a very flawed study, a very small uh, sample of data And it defines false reports to include incidents where uh, the police decide not to prosecute a matter. Mm. Um, But that could be for multiple reasons. Exactly. evidence. That's what she says, that the standard is so high and that very few cases of sexual Mm. assault meet that standard, unfortunately, because more often than not, the only witnesses to a sexual assault are the victim and the perpetrator. Yes. Um, So that was one interesting tidbit. Um, Another interesting tidbit was that false reports in a lot of jurisdictions includes incidents where a person withdraws their complaint, which, again, could be for a whole host of reasons, not least likely the fact that, you know, people get to a point where they are just sick and tired of the process and don't want to sort of go through the trauma of having to go through a committal and a Mm. trial and then be put on the stand themselves, which often happens with complainants of sexual assault. So it's a very simplified statistic. Yeah. So um, that was really interesting because she said there was a particular men's rights activist organisation that says actually somewhere in the vicinity of 40% of reports of sexual assault are false. Is it that poor alums, guys? No, I think it was someone in the same vein, you know, but... 
um, yeah, she kind of just destroys that whole myth. Um, but again, yeah, really interesting to kind of see that perspective. And yeah, I didn't know that the actual definition of flawed, uh, sorry, false reports was so flawed. Right. I didn't know that either. Yeah. So I guess we both learned something mm. new from this. But it just um, really baffles me. Like you just get these angry men mm. who have nothing better to do. Like, why don't they focus on trying to be better dads rather than just, <laughs> you know, feeling like they're hard done by by the justice system? Yeah. Well, it goes to her, I suppose, broader point about the fact that, you know, the systems in society have been structured in such a way that they have led men to feel entitled about these things, that they are deserving of these things. You can feel entitled if you put in the hard work and more often than not, if you haven't put in the time required to rear your children and to raise them, then you're not going to be able to get what, that's not an entitlement then, you haven't worked for it. Yeah, but I think more often than not, they have not had to work for that in the past. So the idea of having to work for it now is abhorrent to them that, what do you mean I'm not entitled to equal time. I'm the father of this child. Once upon a time in some jurisdictions, that was the status quo. Yeah, but you're the father. You're pretty much, you could be a real father. Like, it's the very long end of the spectrum. You've Mm. got genuine great fathers and then you've got sperm donor fathers who are nothing more than just, you know. Well, this is a side note, but um, I would always just sort of roll my eyes when I would have a male family law client that would complain about um, a woman, uh, you know, trying to sort of strip him of all his assets by making him go through the court system for access, um, but then at the same time not be willing to, for example, accede to request for child support. Yeah. Oh, my God. That shits me so much. (sighs) And child support, it's not much. No, it's really not. Like, more often than not, when an assessment is made for how much a, you know, non-primary caregiver parent should be paying, it's nowhere near enough to actually, you know, look after that child. Well, I remember being shocked once when I saw the child support that they were being paid was not even enough to buy, like, a Happy Meal. Yeah. And um, I encountered that really often when I worked for Legal Aid. Well, and even the- then they would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to pay her the $20 a fortnight to look after the two children aged below the age of five. Which is why it makes sense that the two were separate. Like, mm. I think it, baff- it like blows a lot of people's minds that the child support stuff is assessed by a separate agency. It's not mm. assessed through the courts. The courts don't assess that. And um, I remember the principal we worked with explained the rationale behind that, which is that you cannot buy time to see your children, mm-hmm. which I think is a sound policy basis for that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, look, family court will forever be a very interesting jurisdiction that really brings out the worst in everyone. Mm, well, it'll be interesting at the very least to see what comes out of this review. Yeah. I'm not optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to um, the next big topic, which has been exposed, the story of Kelly Lane, which was um, screening on ABC. So it's a three-part series that discussed um, the very interesting case of Kelly Lane, who um, was a water polo player Mm. quite high up, and she managed to conceal a number of pregnancies. One of the children... um, is missing, presumed murdered. I mean, she's been convicted of murder, 
which raises very interesting questions because, you know, when you um, compare it with Teacher's Pet, the other podcast, yeah, with Chris Dawson, you know, missing body as well, but mm-hmm. they still managed to think that there wasn't enough evidence there, but, you know. Anywho, so, yeah, I was just wondering from a criminal law perspective what you thought about that case. Um, well, I should preface this by saying that I've never actually worked on a murder trial. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Um, but, but, yeah, on, just... On the justice vibe. Yeah, I mean, on the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, having some knowledge of the substantive and procedural law, I should note that this case was in New South Wales, which has its it own was, yeah. criminal code. Oh, I've got an Victoria. interesting story about this one too. Did you want to share that first? <laughs> Go for it. It's, it just reminded me. Um, so I actually first found out about Kelly Lane before... Um, It was kind of like an interesting topic, I guess, because Uh in uni it it came up for some reason and I chose to do her case as um, my topic for criminal law. And so I had to work with a partner and he was like a Singaporean dude. Um, And like we we planned how we were going to present it. Um, I think we were talking about the, yeah, I I can't remember the specifics of it, but we had to do a a presentation to the class. Mm -hmm. In short, I delivered my bit, finished up. He then delivered his bit and used, like, his 10 minutes to go on a, like, slut-shaming rant and talk about why she was, like, why abortion was evil. (gasps) And I was like, Did anyone say anything or do anything? Well, look, I got a 70. It was, like, a a pity 70 because the shit coming out of his mouth was definitely not. Did you get assessed as a group? Oh, my God. She must have felt so bad for you. She must have seen how stunned. I'm yeah, I was she like, what? <laughs> oh my God, but, you know, that judgment, it raises interesting questions yeah. here with this because it's been the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um. Well, yeah, actually, that's one of the things I wanted the to shaming. touch on. The slut shaming. Oh, my God. Like The DPP's comments. Oh, my God. Okay, so context. Um, I think the question posed by the journal to this guy – or solicitor for the DPP was X. he's he's no longer oh he's no longer Nicholas okay. Cord- um well she posed a question to him and the question was basically do you think Kelly Lane poses a danger to the wider community and specifically other children and then he kind of you know laughs to himself and says <laughs> something weird. along the lines of correct me if I'm wrong but yeah. it's something like oh well I think she's a danger to the you know, virile um, men of young you know, men, young men of the northern beaches, which oh, is like such a so inappropriate. Like he that. had to resign from the White Ribbon chair or whatever it was. Well, thank God. I mean, I mean, White Ribbon's a whole separate yeah. Story. White Ribbon should resign from itself. We can talk you know. about that. Next time. <laughs> but um, yeah. But oh my God, yeah, exactly. Would okay, you have so treated a guy this way? If that is the mindset of the prosecutor who decided to prosecute the case. Oh. What was the mindset of the 14 jurors yeah. that found her guilty? I remember listening to um, an interview with um, Caro, I remember last name, the journalist, her name's Caro or something. <laughs> you mean the journalist for this? For the ABC. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sarah? So, no, it was Caro or something. something. Oh, okay. Anyway, anyway. yeah, I know you're talking about. <laughs> the journalist mm. and um she said she spoke to the doctor of kelly lane and they didn't get to show it because of timing restraints but he said when he went to give evidence at court he looked around and everyone there was a man 
Like, everyone at the bar table was a man. Mm. Everyone at, you know, the judge was a man. Um, and I think maybe the majority of the jurors were men. But he was like, um, the doctor said, look, I started crying because I was like, what hope does she have, mm. really? That's awful. Because you've – it's – I think a lot of the slut – like, slut shaming bit would have come out heavily in this. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a very peculiar story to begin with. Her parents are very peculiar. Yeah, the ignorance of her family, her friends. That, that's denial to the Her max. partners, like the person that she was still intimate with while pregnant. And she was having sex full term with one of them. Yeah. Who I they just, didn't get to interview. I can't fathom how that happens. Um, but, yeah, it is definitely a peculiar story. She has five pregnancies. The first two she aborts. The third she adopts out. No, wait. The third was Tegan, wasn't it? Wasn't it? I thought the fourth was Tegan. And then the fifth she adopts out again. And then she has a sixth child that she ends up keeping. Oh. I'm confused. But, yeah, look. But essentially a lot of pregnancies, some abortions, (laughs) some adoptions. So she definitely sort of goes against the grain of what society considers to be a good woman. So like a Lindy Chamberlain type. Yeah. Not. You know, she's seemingly promiscuous, um, seemingly, you know, exercising her bodily autonomy. She doesn't seem to showcase the maternal instinct that we expect of women that give birth to children. And doing a very, very dangerous sport while she was at it. Yeah. Like one of my colleagues does water polo and she said that she got like a chunk out of her shoulder bitten. Oh my God. I was like, what the hell? But yeah, she was doing that while she was still heavily pregnant. Amazingly enough, all of her colleagues knew that she was pregnant or suspected, mm. but no one said anything. So bizarre. Yeah, so that's definitely a very <laughs> peculiar aspect of the story. Um, but yeah, the trial itself, I mean, I think the um, doco touches on this, but getting a murder conviction in the absence of a body in the absence of any forensic evidence, in the absence of any witnesses. It's hard. It is quite unusual, if not rare, Mm. and you usually need a really strong, compelling, circumstantial case. And on what was revealed in this series, I really don't think the case was strong. Um, See, I don't know how it got through, to be honest. I don't know how it got past committal. Well, is there a committal process in New South Wales? I have no idea. They don't touch on that at all because it seems to go straight from the coronial to trial. Okay, but to go back to the Lynn Dawson thing, they've had two coronials where they think it's him. Yeah. Why hasn't that proceeded to trial then? Exactly. Well, yeah, that's where I think sort of... Double standard. It is a massive double standard. And And she was so young when it happened too. Like she was only in her 20s. Her character was completely assassinated throughout the trial. Um, There was evidence that was led about all the other pregnancies and evidence led about her sexual history. Um, But it's quite similar in the way that rape cases proceed. It is. I mean, you can't do that anymore. Anymore, but you used to be able to decimate their, like, reputation. But even with a murder trial like this, ordinarily you couldn't um, admit evidence of those sorts of things because it's not relevant to the case before you. But the way the prosecution was able to lead evidence of this was by actually tagging on additional charges of perjury. Oh, and those perjury charges related to misleading statements she gave to Angela oh, Care for the adoption of one of the other pregnancies. That is 
really clever. But yeah, it opened the way to give all this other sort of... That's so strategic, but really horrible. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if, if you were defence, you would have applied to have seven of those charges. I'm not quite sure why defence did not do that. Who was she defended by? Um, did she she had a lawyer. She did. No, she had... There were two instructing solicitors and a barrister. The barrister received the brief three weeks before the trial. Again, very unusual, um, especially for a murder trial. You would usually get that months in advance. Um, and defence refused to speak to this journal. Yeah, right. Um, at all. So it's really hard to sort of speak to why they did what they did and didn't do what they seemingly should have done. See, I'm surprised. The thing about this documentary was that it's surprising that she was allowed access to all these people like she spoke to the coroner who presided over the coronial Mm. she spoke to Nicholas Cowdery who was the ex um DPP Mm -hmm. and she managed to speak to a lot of people and so is that going to jeopardize any chance if it gets I don't know well like what's the what's the end goal of this well she's exhausted all her legal avenues at this stage so even if they do find the baby She'll still have to sit out the rest of her conviction. Well, I, I again, I don't know what the process is in New South Wales. Um, or would it be here? Isn't that fresh and compelling? Yeah, you would think so. And so can't you just redo it again? I would I would think, at, depending on whether or not they find that, if they do, in Victoria, yes, that would be the case. But I don't know how that works in New South Wales. I think a baby's cropping Surely up. you would think there would be hey, some mechanism. Hey, baby Tegan's here. <laughs> Look, I really hope there is a baby out there. Yeah. The thing is, with this Andrew Norris Morris Forrest, like, you know, um, the Andrew guy who she says that she gave the baby to, him and mm. his partner, mm. or mother, I can't remember. The mother. partner and mother were apparently. Okay, so everyone was here apparently. Yeah. Um, the thing is, apparently he was, yeah, he was married. So that's the reason why there was, it was a lot under wraps and mm. that type of thing as well. But maybe he was using a different name. I think that's the other thing that was brought up. That's how it ended, where essentially the journo is oh, yeah. um, interrogating her, saying... It might not be the right name. Yeah, and she concedes that maybe. I know his first name's Andrew. And that's how it kind of ends. <laughs> oh, like yeah. on a bit. And it's still ongoing. Like, they're mm. still asking for leads. It's kind of like... It's interesting seeing this emergence of investigative journalism, like... Yeah. Um, like also, serial, serial, yeah, and then making a murderer, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. second one now. But you know, like a lot of influence that like us at home want to play detective. Yeah. I, I wonder if that jeopardizes like criminal investigations. Well, there were substantive legal developments to come from both serial and making a murderer. Mm. Um, so who's to say something similar won't happen in this case? And teacher's pet was enough to put pressure on the police to dig up mm. the house again mm. around the pool to see if they could find the body. Mm. So I guess in that sense. And there were definitely some investigative issues with this case, um, cases of police not following up on things. Missing documents, potential um, conflicts of interest. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, I think this was actually a conflict of interest to her benefit in the beginning where the first investigator was actually someone who worked with her father, knew that's her father right. quite and yeah, well. That's the other thing. Her father is a police officer. Yeah. And um, everyone talks about the northern beaches of Sydney as being the insular peninsula. Mm. And so it's very, like, incestuous. And it sounds freaking crazy, like, yeah. during that time. And I think because, like, I keep talking about Teacher's Pet because the two happened in the same mm-hmm. area. Um just the culture, like the surfy, hypersexualized culture. I just can't. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to think that that's a part of Sydney, and you know. Yeah, 
I think we're too ethnic for it, so I'm glad we didn't have to grow up with it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, until the next time that we meet Witchney, which we promise will be a lot sooner because um, we have a lot of things to chat about. Yeah. Um, we will see you guys around. <laughs>